Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. This week in the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Kevin McCullough. Great to be with you. The president takes a dark turn in his address to the nation from Independence Hall. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. What was the motive in delivering such a polarizing speech? He's saying that they're less than you. And it fits a pattern, a shift from the president. The president had actually called these Republicans semi-fascist. The Biden administration works to undo Title IX protections for women and girls. The word sex now includes gender identity. And a look at the lack of theological depth in the church today. Over a third of senior pastors believe good people can earn their way to heaven. We've got all this and more. I'm your host, Kevin McCullough, coming to you from my home station in New York City, where you can hear my program live each weekday afternoon on AM 570, and 102.3 FM, The Mission, WMCA. Take a moment to follow Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook and follow me on Instagram at KMC Radio. Great to be with you. In less than two months, the nation will be voting in a midterm election that could shake things up in the nation's capital. With inflation higher than it's been in decades and fuel prices remaining at near record highs, the president has made some desperate moves to try to change the narrative as the country prepares to vote. The student loan bailout was received with a resounding thud, but the president's address to the nation last week, Thursday, marked a dark shift. There's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. I spoke about it with Michael Goodwin, a columnist for the New York Post. I'm curious your instant reaction to the fact that nearly six out of ten independents, or a little more than that, say that this was a dangerous escalation of rhetoric and designed to incite conflict amongst Americans. Uh, well, I do believe that the speech was a dangerous escalation. As I wrote in my column, Joe Biden is otherizing Republicans, and by that you know, it's a term that's often applied to ethnic cleansing and extermination, et cetera. I don't mean to suggest that that's what he's about, but he's saying that they're less than you. Not just that we disagree with them, not just that they're wrong, but that they're less than you. They're less noble. They work in darkness, he said. They, they are afraid of the light. I mean, it sounds like he's talking about rats. It just came across as a very hateful speech and a license for Democrats and those independents who support Democrats to hate the other side. And I think that's, A, it's dangerous when anyone does that. It's dangerous when people on the right do it, too. But for a president to do it, 
is so exceptional and so thankfully unprecedented in, in modern times, really, that it, it just came across, I think, as a vile approach to appeal to a kind of not just fear, but hatred. I believe Joe Biden is terrified of a Republican Congress. Now, any president doesn't want the other party to control part of Congress as president. It will thwart your agenda, basically, in most cases. But I think here Joe Biden has another reason to hate and to fear Republicans, and that is they have all vowed, both in the Senate and in the House, they will investigate him over his ties with his son, Hunter Biden. We know from the laptop that the access was granted to foreign uh, people who were Hunter's paymasters. We know from Tony Bobolinsky that Joe Biden knew all about this business of working with the Chinese. The New York Post showed the visitor logs at the vice president's mansion that Hunter and his partner, Eric Swerwin, went often to visit Joe immediately after returning from a foreign trip. So the list goes on of evidence that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were partners in yes. Hunter's business. And I think that's what Joe Biden is afraid of. That's what's making him so desperate and because this was a speech of a desperate man. I also think that it's going to backfire, Michael, and I would be interested in your take on this. I wrote in my piece in Town Hall on Sunday that the idea that he's trying to link the anger of January 6th and, and Trump the person to all of the Republicans running, this is clearly he, he made that association 13 or 14, 15 times in the speech. But when you see that he kept talking about MAGA and all the MAGA things, MAGA Republicans, uh, he would say inconsistent things like not all Republicans are MAGA, uh, but yet everybody that voted for Trump embraced the Make America Great Again ideals. Right. What do you think? Look, I think what he's trying to do, Biden, with that kind of speech is to put Trump on the ballot. So we, the Democrats, we're not running against Republicans. We're running against MAGA Republicans. We're running against Donald Trump. I mean, MAGA is another word for Trump, right? Yeah. It's the synonym without saying the name. And so I think that's the strategy, is that, yeah, sure, inflation's bad, the border is open, recession, Russia saw what happened in Afghanistan and decided to invade Ukraine, you know, China's trying to eat our lunch in, in every way possible and take Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Iran, you know. So let's not talk about any of that. Yeah. You know, crime is up, murder's up. Let's not talk. Let's talk about MAGA. Mega, yeah. mega. Look over yeah. here, the shiny thing over here. That's what I think he hopes to run against in the fall to have to have the, the so that the Democrats can keep Congress and protect him from the scrutiny that would yeah. follow a Republican victory. I, I think he's going to have a hard time making that case, but we'll see. There's no question about it. The president is trying to shift the narrative, but he's doing so in a way that is frankly irresponsible. Here's Dr. Albert Moeller from his briefing program. On Thursday night of last week, the nation's head of state and head of government, President Joe Biden, stood in the venerable location of Philadelphia's Independence Hall. That is, after all, where independence was declared, where the Declaration of Independence was signed. And furthermore, it harkens back to our constitutional tradition as well. President Biden got up and gave a speech in which he warned about threats to democracy. Now, on the one hand, you would expect a president of the United States faced with a threat to democracy 
to let the American people know it. But as it turns out, the speech that was given by President Biden wasn't so much an appeal to the entire nation about threats to democracy. And make no mistake, some of the things he identified are threats to democracy. The bigger problem is that President Joe Biden, as at least others have represented, didn't speak as a Democrat with a little d to citizens of the nation, but as a Democrat with a capital D in a highly partisan speech that went far beyond threats to democracy that he claimed were inflicted by others, particularly Republicans of the what he called MAGA Republican stripe, which at points, he said, endangered the entire constitutional order. In Rockville, Maryland, earlier, the president had actually called these Republicans semi-fascist. Now, that's just playing with political fire. That's playing with explosives. It's like taking a political hand grenade and pulling the pin out. You're using the fascism word, and you're applying it to fellow Americans. And yet there are some who would say, well, he was applying it only to, say, certain Republicans acting in a certain way at the behest of former President Donald Trump, speaking just of, say, the January 6th insurrectionists, etc., But that's just fundamentally untrue in the context of how the president has been speaking. He's speaking here with profound disrespect toward tens of millions of Americans who voted not for him, but for someone else, and in particular for former President Donald Trump. Now, this presents Americans with a double dilemma because, in one sense, President Trump has said to many voters, if I didn't win, it's because there was not a legitimate count. But now you have President Biden basically setting it up for the fact that if Democrats don't win, it's because the nation is trending in a semi-fascist direction. Either way you look at it, that is constitutionally irresponsible. And that is just the most incredible understatement of which I'm capable at the moment. Just in case you wonder to whom the president was speaking and of whom he was speaking and this dismissal of these so-called certain Republicans, listen to this section from the transcript of the address he gave in Philadelphia on Thursday night. Quote, MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love, end quote. Now, there you'll notice he went far beyond any reference to insurrectionists. He went far beyond any reference to those he would call election deniers. He goes right at pro-life Americans and Americans who actually know what marriage is. This was a blatantly political speech. It was mischaracterized by the White House, and it was fundamentally wrong to use the presidency in this way and to have Marines, United States Marines, in uniform as a part of the decoration. Now, by the way, the event itself was absolutely bizarre. They took Independence Hall, one of the most venerable sites of America's political history, and with weird lighting, they made it look more like some kind of set for a science fiction movie. But there's one more aspect that many people in Washington have simply used to call out the president, and that is, to quote Ross Douthat of the New York Times, he doesn't appear to believe what he said. If he really believes that these Republicans he describes are so dangerous, then why is his own party putting millions of dollars behind the most radical MAGA candidates by their own definition on the Republican side in primaries? By the definition of Democrats, that is. Why would Democrats operate by the blatant hypocrisy of trying to, in the primary system, go for Republican candidates who are most identified with what the president of the United States calls a toxin in the American political system? Well, it's because they believe those candidates would be easier to beat in statewide elections. Now, even many Democrats are so troubled by this, it's being described by some as one of the least Democratic, little d, developments in all of recent American history. 
using the very vocabulary labels and identifiers that the Democrats have been using and hurling at Republicans, they have to answer for the fact that they and partisan allies, but for that matter, even the official party apparatus has been putting millions of dollars behind radical Republican candidates by the Democrats' description in order to try to basically manipulate the electoral politics for the midterm elections with many statewide votes coming just in a matter of weeks in November. Sometimes the nation's editorial writers get it just right. The Wall Street Journal editorial board released an editorial with the headline, Joe Biden holds a Trump rally. Henry Olson of the Washington Post ran a column that had the headline, quote, Biden's MAGA speech was designed to protect Democrats, capital D, not democracy, little d. He's right. The editorial board of the Washington Post, one of the most liberal newspapers in the country, finally had too much with Joe Biden. They offered a headline, quote, democracy is in danger. Biden should invoke patriotism, not partisanship, to make that point. Or we can put it another way. It doesn't make much sense. There isn't much moral credibility in yelling fire when you're caught pouring fuel on that fire. Coming up, the battle over biological sex. Our big concern is that parents' rights when they have a child who decides, oh, I've decided I'll become another gender, that they will lose their right to speak into that. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. It was 50 years ago in June of 1972 when President Nixon signed the piece of legislation we have commonly referred to simply as Title IX. The bill dramatically leveled the playing field for women in education and in school sports. The Biden administration is working to undermine Title IX and with it undermine the rights of parents. Don Crow turned to Kathy Walker of the Child and Parental Rights Campaign. They spoke on WAVA 105.1 FM in the nation's capital. Would you first start maybe for folks who say, well, I don't even really know what the original Title IX is all about. Uh, Would you take just a moment to tell us why initially it was apparently a good move and what it contained that we want to retain as opposed to change. So it occurred during about the same time as the civil rights era. I believe it was 1972. And sadly enough, during Roe versus Wade, basically. But the purpose of it was to make sure that young women got opportunity in education and in sports. And what that meant for someone like me growing up in the 70s and 80s was that I had opportunities in sports that I might not have had or my mother might not have had when she was my age. Now, let's start with the fact that, uh, according to your and John's piece, first concern has to do with parents' uh, parental rights. What's happening in that regard that concerns you? Yeah, and I think this is where we're the most concerned. I call it the Californication <laughs> that's mm. happening with the Biden administration right now. So sort of a new definition of that. 
we ran a story today actually about Abigail Martinez. Uh, she was a woman in California whose daughter was removed from her home uh, because she was not using her daughter's chosen pronouns. And our big concern and the big concern of Bernadette Broyle for the Child and Parental Rights Campaign is that parents' rights, when they have a child who decides, oh, I've decided I'll become another gender or I'll decide that I'm non-binary, that they will lose their right to speak into that. Instead, the school will start speaking into that and then potentially even channel that child to clinics. And that is happening already in California and as well as some other states. And uh, it really does, uh, I think uh, this piece puts it, uh, weaponize government agencies like Child Protective Services really to drive this new cultural and social agenda, regardless of what parents or legitimate counselors or clinics uh, may think otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's hard, we received a letter about this. Someone said, I looked through those 700 pages and I didn't see anything that said that my parental rights would be taken away. But the assumption in it is what you read before, like the word sex now includes gender identity. And if sex-based harassment or sex discrimination includes gender identity, it means that if your child goes to school and says, I'm another gender, the school then will try to protect them from so-called sex-based harassment. And my fear as a parent is, will that include me, like it did for Abigail Martinez, right? Will that include me as well? Well, a second and primary concern, as your article points out, is the remarkable change that will be done to children's bodies and emotions by encouraging and furthering social experimentation. Uh, Give us some examples, puberty blockers and so forth. Take us into that whole realm as well that gets extremely serious. Yeah, and this is what terrifies me as a mother. And I know, I'm sure you're familiar with Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier, but there's a great job going over this too. Um, these puberty blockers don't make your kids well. Right? They make your kids sick, and your F- the FDA has shown that. But also, I think what's even scarier, besides the fact they can eventually cause sterilization, um, permanent sterilization, is that it gets your kids on a path where they start considering surgery. Um, especially if your kids are involved in social media, which where a lot of this happens, um, a lot of the encouragement for that, they'll start considering surgery as their option. So like a double mastectomy so that they can become a day or they can start calling themselves a boy. The push to redefine what it means to be male and female has presented a challenge to the church. What is needed? Theological clarity, biblical conviction. But this clarity and conviction is lacking today. My colleague Bob Burney looked at a recent survey out of Arizona Christian University from the word 880 AM in Columbus, Ohio. Biblical Christianity is the only religion, and it's not a religion, it's a relationship, but for the sake of the discussion, biblical Christianity is the only religion on planet Earth that does not depend upon some kind of work or works to gain favor, get to heaven, and so forth. 
Biblical Christianity says we are lost. We are separated from God because of our sin, because of the fall of Adam and Eve. In the garden, we have inherited a sinful nature, and we are separated from God. And it was only through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for our sins that any of us can get to heaven. The absolute worst heresy of all is a works-oriented salvation. There is no heresy worse. I would say that someone who claims to be a Christian pastor and tells their people that just do good things, do enough good works, and somehow, someway, you will earn your way to heaven, that does far more damage than any atheist ever could do. And yet, listen to this headline. Over a third of senior pastors believe good people can earn their way to heaven. Here's the story. At least a third of senior pastors in the United States believe one can earn a place in heaven by simply being a good person, according to a nationwide survey. The findings were among several surprising responses as part of a survey conducted earlier this year by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Now, let's get down to evangelical pastors. And I'm quoting, 39% of evangelical pastors surveyed said, there is no absolute moral truth and that each individual must determine their own truth. These are pastors who consider themselves to be evangelical pastors, and 39% said, eh, there's no such thing as absolute moral truth. Each individual must determine their own truth. Perhaps most startlingly, three in ten evangelical pastors didn't answer in the affirmative if their salvation is based on having confessed their sins and accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. 30% of evangelical pastors said, nah, salvation is not based on confessing your sins and accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. 70% did. We can rejoice in that. But 30% of pastors who claim to be evangelical are believing, teaching, preaching, heresy. What kind of heresy? Damnable heresy. Coming up, campus ministry. Young people are feeling isolated and they are just looking for somebody to look them in the eye and say, let's talk about your soul. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. (laughs) 
Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Kevin McCullough. The picture we get from Bob Bernie of where the church is today is not particularly encouraging. But young people today are hungry, or at least they are hurting and searching for answers. That's the observation from wretched radio host Todd Friel in his ministry experiences on college campuses in recent days. Friel was a guest of Lee Michaels on AM 980, The Mission in the Twin Cities. We'll pick up with Lee's comments about his ministry to his own mother before she died. I hope and pray that all those seeds that were planted and all the conversations we had, and, and especially the conversation you had with her, is one of those that would have made a difference. But I, that's one of those hard things that, Todd, as you know, when you're sharing the gospel, especially with loved ones, we can't get hung up on the decision. It, it is their choice, and we just have to turn that over to the Lord. Yeah, that's in, that actually helps us to witness better. I remember when I first started hitting the streets to witness 20-some years ago after listening to Ray Comfort, and I felt like I had to win every debate and argument, and this person needed to drop their knees on the spot, <laughs> repent, and put their trust in Jesus, for it was a disaster. And yeah. when you thinking that salvation is incumbent upon your performance, wow, it lightens the load, and you can actually just talk to somebody. Yeah, I've been going out to the university campuses still, and I've noticed the witness encounters get longer and longer, and I know the culture gets more and more hostile toward Christianity. But if you can find yourself a sinner, university student or otherwise, I'm telling you, the kids want to talk these days. When I'm finished with somebody, we've maybe spent an hour together talking about nothing but the law and the gospel. I get the distinct feeling that they look at me like, do you, do, you, do you have to go? They are just desperate to talk to a big person who's actually interested in them. So lose the idea that you have to win the argument or that you have to convert the person and just love on them and share great news. Uh, when, when they see that you actually care about them and you are, like you said, not there to win the argument, but to show them, uh, the love and compassion and the concern you have for their eternal life can have an impact. Um, how how have things changed in uh, maybe a very obvious question or maybe not uh, when you're on campuses from 15, 16, 17 years ago to today? I've seen seasons. I have seen where you go through a period where it's pretty tense most of the time. But then I've seen other seasons that will follow right on its heels where the kids are receptive and they want to hear right now. I think we're in a season where students want to hear young people are feeling isolated. Social media, uh, no matter how many friends they supposedly have, the pixels don't make up for people. So the kids are feeling alone. The COVID lockdown didn't help them feel connected to other people regularly even with two parent homes mom and dad are busy pursuing things and don't have time for the kids and they are just looking for somebody to look them in the eye and say let's talk about your soul you're learning all kinds of stuff probably rotten stuff frankly in the university classroom let's talk about your eternity let's talk about something heavier and i'm telling you they dig it a lot yeah, I, I can imagine uh, there's nothing more precious than sharing that or people understanding that relationship with Christ and the impact that it can have. And now it doesn't make everything, you know, become roses uh, that minute. 
But, you know, for me, there was a lot of fear and anxiety that I literally saw leave me uh, when I understood and accepted mm. the gospel. And yeah, yeah. I use that as... Okay, there, there's, there, I think if every Christian looks at their life, you're right. We are not fully sanctified until we've been glorified, but you will see fruit. And Lee, I'll tell you one of the silly ones. There were several, actually. First of all, I was horrified of death. It terrified me. I didn't know God. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I knew nothing. And I knew if I died, there's going to be somebody who judges me and it ain't going to go well for me. And as a kid, I was terrified of death. Mm -hmm. Now, after getting saved, it's not like I'm looking forward to like, Ooh, I've got to rush the day when I get to die. But that's how I feel now. It's like, it ain't going to be terrible. It's going to be the best day of my life because that's when eternity begins. Now, I guess somebody could go to a psychologist and have a better attitude about death. But I'm just telling you, God so changed my heart regarding death, flying in an airplane. Oh, like I used to <laughs> go to the airport and then call the client I was supposed to meet in Timbuktu and say, oh, the plane got canceled because I was afraid to go on the airplane. Wow. Now it. That's, I'm telling you, I got saved, and it was like, boop, that's all done. I get on the airplane and fly because if God is going to take my life that day, he can do it on the ground as well as he can do it in the air. <laughs> Coming up. You are God and I am not. And we have to get to a place where we're honestly saying that from our heart. Reliance on Christ. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Kevin McCullough. Whether you're a student on campus, a parent with the stresses of bringing up kids today, or a grandparent looking at the legacy you'd like to leave for your grandkids, whatever your stage of life, I hope you're reaching for a place of complete reliance on Christ alone. That sort of motivation is what pushed Zach Elliott to write his book, Now I See, an Invitation to Life to the Full. Zach was the guest of Georgine Rice on KBDQ 93.9 FM in Portland. Well, that day I really had hit that point of saying I, I cannot continue in the way that I'm currently operating. So I shut the door and I said, God, I think I'm done. I think that it really just praying in conversation with God saying, I think I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And the best thing that I can describe is, you know, you hear that quiet voice like at the center mm -hmm. of your brain and it's just God speaking and you just hear truth. And I was brought to Proverbs, the end of Proverbs, where there's no vision that people perish. And that just rang in my head. And on the back side of that, the vision is Jesus. The vision is Jesus. It was just a whisper kind of thought. And my mom had given me a book written by a guy from England named Pete Gregg, and he wrote a poem. And at the beginning of that poem, it says, the vision is Jesus. And that just kept repeating, you know, where there's no vision that people perish, the vision is Jesus, almost like a call and response. And so I just wrestled with that. I prayed with that. But I just said, 
Jesus, you are the vision and all of those old hymns, be the center and be mm-hmm. thou my vision. All that stuff was kind of stirred up in me in that prayer. And I just said, Jesus, you are the center and you haven't been. And if I'm going to continue, if this is going to continue, you must be the center. And so I just went to my desk and I took out four printer pages out of my printer and I wrote the vision is Jesus. And I just wrote a VU for me, that was vision up. And then I wrote a VI and a VO. And I just resigned that day to say, I don't want to participate with anything where Jesus is not the center. Mm -hmm. And I want to look to him. I want to look more like him. And I want to look with him and see who and what and how he sees in the world. And those four pieces of paper actually became the outline for this book. And that was like 14 years ago. And so I kept those and that became my own personal way of discipleship and discipleship in my family and the way that we oriented pastoral leadership in the church. That was kind of the inner DNA. And along the way, the last 14 years, I've had several people say, you should share that in a different form. You know, you've talked about it in small groups and sermons and conversations over coffee. But a good friend of mine came to me three years ago and said, would you write that down and help to make this possible? But it was that day, really at a desperate place saying, God, I think I'm done, that he answered with, I was done because I had no vision. Mm-hmm. He he had stopped being the center for me, and he needed to bring me back to that place. Now, my guess is every believer who's listening would agree with everything that you've said, that Christ should be the center, that uh, that he should be our vision, but may not know how to get from mm-hmm. where we are Uh, a little bit shackled into a place where we're confined by what's familiar to us and what's accepted even in our congregations to making him the focus. How do we make that transition? How do we begin to live out what we all agree the scripture tells us is what he has in store for us, which is so much more than most of us are experiencing? Yeah. For me, I needed that return to my creaturehood, Mm -hmm. to that creator-creature relationship. That had to get realigned. And that had to be the starting place for relationship. Him as creator, me as a creature that he made, and that recognition that I was made by him and for him. And I I really think, again, our culture is moving so fast and we want really wonderful answers and, and great intellectual answers or powerful action steps that we can take. But I really think that the most powerful thing we can do is return to him as creature and come to the creator and say, I miss you. I long for you. I need you. And and really confess. It's a, it's we talk about it in terms of the creature confession that says you are God and I am not. And we have to get to a place where we're honestly saying that from our heart. I think that's the starting point. That's what I found. That's what my co-author Rebecca Sandberg found is that we had attached quite a bit of under other armor other things intellectually, mm-hmm. patchwork theology and culture. So it, it had all kind of encumbered us. And we needed to let that go and come back to a starting place to say, we were made by you and for you. You are God. I am not. And if you remember like the Atlas carrying the weight of the world, I talk about being alone at the center. If you can imagine with us at the center, the weight of the world is really resting on our shoulders. Which we We've were never designed to never, attempt to carry. Never, ever designed for that. But that's what we have bought culturally. And even in the church, we've started to adopt that posture. And it's just wearing us down to the point we can't breathe. And this confession of the creature is to step out of center. And it sounds so simple, but it's really freeing to say, you are God and I am not. And so 
here are all of the things that I have been carrying on me that do not belong on my show. I was never made for that. I was made for this relationship and to find life flowing from you. And so I talk about in the book waiting in a place until that is the honest outpouring of your heart. You mm-hmm. are God and I am not. And where we can honestly say that to him. I, I just love that it calls us back to uh, the vision that we must have in order not to perish, which is an awkward way of saying it, but that vision is Jesus. But you go from there, vision up, vision in, vision out. Uh, the vision is Jesus. Explain that because it's an important way for us to see the world uh, and to see our role in God's kingdom. Yeah, it's it's just such a gentle way. You used that word earlier that Jesus's invitation is really gentle. It's easy. And when we come to him, the first thing that happens is we've been talking about this primary relationship is creature creator. And so we look to him and everything has to start there because that is where that weight shifts. And we realize that we are not at the center and that he is God and we are not. And that really unlocks for the creature, our primary position and our primary posture, which is one of adoration. It's, we were made to, I I say, we were made to love him back. And so this is the first thing that must happen. And we, in, these things happen in sequence. It's kind of a trail. We use that trail mm-hmm. imagery. But the first thing that happens to us is we encounter this perfect love in God and we receive it and we want to love him back. And it's in that adoration that we discover that not only has that, is that our vision up, we're looking to him, but it's in that place that we recover our identity, our true identity, and we realize that same life has been given to me. And now my, my destiny is really to look just like him. And as that transformation takes place, we talk it about, we talk about it in terms of love maturing. Mm-hmm. And really transformation is just our lives, his love in us maturing and maturing and maturing, leaving infancy, passing through adolescence and reaching that really generous place of mature love. Coming up, a new hymn from the Gettys. She came up with this great melody at the little upright piano in my office, and I heard it, and I went, oh, my goodness. Stay with us for the final segment of The Christian Outlook. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. Complete reliance on Christ. I hope that's what you've taken away from that conversation with Zach Elliott in our last segment. Complete reliance leads us to a place of worship. That's what my friends Keith and Kristen Getty have been doing for decades now. They are leading hymn writers of our generation, and they have a new song of adoration just released. I spoke with Keith about The Lord Almighty Reigns. You've got a brand new song out today. Give me a a little uh, what's behind the music there. Well, it's called The Lord Almighty Reigns. Uh, It's a song about heaven, but it's a song that reminds us about what our future is. It really echoes what you just said in the last 30 seconds, that we live with this incredible promise that affects how we eat breakfast each day, how we think about our struggles, and how we worship. And uh, we are just thrilled to release it today. It's called The Lord Almighty Reigns. It's out 
on YouTube and Spotify and all all that and Apple and all those all yeah. those um, streaming streaming sites. And but we want people to listen to it. We want them to sing it, and we want them to use it in their church and remind us of heaven. Eighty percent of the great hymns throughout history, over eighty percent of them, according to hymnologists, talked about heaven. Wow. Modern worship, modern music, modern modern worship music gives us between three and four percent. Oh, that is a very uh, kind of lopsided uh, <laughs> reversal there. Well, as as long as you think of this life as all there is, then it's perfect. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, so, uh, what was the inspiration for the lyric and the and the melody? Where'd you get it from? Well, it was it was it was my wife uh, wanted wanted to write a hymn just on Revelation because, of course, Revelation itself is a of worship. It's it's a uh, it's 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 a, it's a great collection of singing hymns to our Creator, to our Redeemer, to the One who is uh, beyond all things. And so she thought she just picked. The Lord Almighty reigns, and she came up with this great melody at the little upright piano in my office, and uh, and I heard it, and I went, "Oh my goodness!" Yeah. So, so Pop and Boz were in time, and they came around, and the three of us worked and worked, and we took it to Ireland and kept working at it. And uh, oh, we're we're just so excited, and we're doing it this weekend with uh, with a gospel choir, which is just going to be extraordinary. Also doing it with Blessing Offer, and uh, the Shane that just recorded it as well that came out soon. So, really excited about about the song. Well, I'm really excited. We'll go out with a bit of the Lord Almighty reigns. There's an endless song waiting to be sung with the voice of every tribe, the sound of every tongue. When the bride of Christ. On that day of days Brings with joy unto the Lamb A multitude of praise Like the roar of mighty seas And rolls of thunder Hear His people sing That wraps up this edition of the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, share it with a friend. Send them to ChristianOutlook.com. Subscribe to our podcast. And thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schubin, producers David Posehan, Mike Cook, and Nicholas Malone, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. Paramedics do the incredible. They help save lives. And so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that may give your kid's music teacher the chance to see your son play in the season opener or give your mechanic the chance to give his best man speech. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and receive up to $1,000 your first month. Varies by location and is subject to change.